As you're finding your seat, I invite you to take up your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. I'm going to read from verse 16 all the way through the end of chapter 9. Um, if, if you don't have a Bible with you, there are Bibles in front of you that uh, we have provided uh, for your use. And if you need help finding the passage, it can be found on page 910. And if you don't have a Bible with you because you simply don't own a Bible personally, I invite you to take that Bible as your own. Uh, that is a free gift to you. And uh, if you'd like one, we'd encourage you to do that to that end. Uh, for those of you who may not know me, my name is Mike Kazrowski. I serve as the lead pastor here at FAC. And if we have not had the privilege of, of to, to meet after service, um, I would encourage you to come up and say hi. I would love the, the pleasure of meeting you if we haven't um, uh, done so yet. Uh, before we get into today's text, uh, I do want to encourage you that if you weren't with us last Sunday or if you didn't listen to the sermon yet from last Sunday, to go back and do that because this is really a part two, if you will, of the text. It's meant to be read as a whole. And uh, even in the first sermon from last week, I shared a disclaimer of sorts on the topic. Uh, I'm not going to repeat it this week, uh, but it goes uh, the same goes for this week. And so I'd encourage you once again to go back and listen because everything said last week, we can't say anything this week without having the thing that said last week said. Uh, and so once again, my encouragement is that you would go back and listen. Um, let's go ahead and turn to God's word. We'll start in verse 16 of 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Please follow along as I read. But thanks be to God who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you of his own accord. With him we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. And not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. We take this course so that no one should blame us about the generous gift that is being administered by us. For we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. And with them, we are sending our brother whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit and as for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. So give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. Now it's superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints, for I know your readiness of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready, as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised, so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, 
so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but it is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Let's pray. And Father, we know that you are faithful because you have fulfilled all of your promises through your son, Jesus. I pray, Lord, that as we take time to search out the scriptures today, that we, by your spirit's enablement, would root our lives and our character and our integrity and your very faithfulness, that you would be our firm foundation. Give us clarity and understanding this morning as we look to your living word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In 1950, the famous evangelist Billy Graham had just concluded a successful five-week crusade in Atlanta, Georgia, when he came across a local newspaper that would catalyze a change in his ministry for the rest of his life. To Graham's surprise, the local newspaper, which was covering the uh, crusade, reporting on it, uh, prominently uh, ran two photographs side by side. The first photograph was a picture of Billy Graham waving goodbye to the city with an ear-to-ear smile. Um, the, the second picture was that, uh, which was right next to it, showed ushers who were carrying out four giant bulging bags of money that had been collected as a love offering during the Crusades. From that day on, uh, Billy Graham, seeing how that looked, determined that he would never again give people any reason to question his own personal integrity or the integrity of the ministry, especially on financial matters. From there on, he actually established a board of Christian businessmen that handled every single last penny that was donated uh, to the organization. And um, Graham himself was put on a fixed salary. He never again received a single penny from those love offerings. Instead, the love offerings, as they supplied the, the ministry, he received a fixed income from from the ministry. And From there on out, the organization's records and even Billy Graham's own personal finances, personal finances were audited every single year and the records were made public. From this, throughout his entire ministry, Billy Graham was known as a model of financial integrity. And he probably learned that from the Apostle Paul. Much like Billy Graham, the Apostle Paul here in 2 Corinthians understands the importance of integrity 
when it comes to dealings with money, especially a collection of money. If you were here with us last week, uh, you know that Paul in this section of the, the Corinthian, of Second Corinthians is encouraging the church to finish a giving initiative that had started the year prior. We know that this is called the Jerusalem Collection, and it was a giving initiative uh, from non-Jewish churches, Gentile churches, to bless Jewish Christians in Jerusalem and in the, the area of Judea who had fallen on hard economic times. Now we'll find out later in Second Corinthians that Paul actually came under accusation by false preachers in Corinth. He calls them the super apostles, and they accuse him that he somehow was using the collection to line his own pockets. And so in light of that, Paul decides that he's going to be above reproach and he has integrity on the mind. Much like Billy Graham, Paul goes to great lengths to ensure the integrity of the collection. And in our passage, he doesn't just address the integrity of the collection of those actually receiving the funds and transporting them to Jerusalem. But Paul also has in mind the integrity of the giver. He wants to ensure that the one giving towards the collection is also of a right heart. And so in our, in our passage, in order to maintain integrity, at the beginning of our passage, Paul explains to the Corinthians how this collection will go down, how they are going to, the, the actual details of what this is going to look like. And more specifically, he tells them who will collect the offering, when they will collect the offering, and why they're going to do it this way, in this fashion. So first, with the rest of chapter 8, verses 16 through 24, Paul tells them who will actually come and collect the gifts that the Corinthians offer. Paul is the one leading the charge, but he's distancing himself from the actual physical collection itself here at the beginning. He, he, He says, I'm going to send three people to handle the money. And then he talks about all three of them. The first person he's going to send is Titus. Titus is his ministry partner. If you recall, Titus was the one who delivered Paul's severe letter of rebuke, most likely, to the Corinthians. But upon their repentance, Titus was greatly encouraged. So much so, as we find out in this passage, that Titus was eager to go back to the Corinthians. Paul had it in mind to send, the, to send Titus to the Corinthians for this collection. But we get the idea that, that Titus actually offered himself up to go first. He volunteered for the task. He volunteered to serve in this capacity because he shared Paul's heart of care for the Corinthians, is what he says. That's the first person being sent. The second person, the second man that Paul sends, probably has a less intimate relationship with Paul. Paul knows him, but he doesn't have as close of a relationship as he does with Titus. And we get this idea from verse 23, actually, further down the passage, because Titus is referred to as Paul's partner and fellow worker in ministry, where the latter two men that are sent are just messengers from the churches. This second man in verse 18 isn't even referred to as our brother, as if there was an existing relationship, but he's just the brother. You know, that guy, this one, we're going to send this guy. Paul doesn't even name him. We don't know who he is, and there's all sorts of speculation about uh, who the man might be, but there's really no concrete evidence as to who it is. 
But the fact that he is unknown to us is not important. What's important in the text is that while he may be unknown to us, he was not unknown to all the churches of Paul's time. This is a rather popular fellow. He, he, he's actually famous among all of the churches. Everybody knows who this guy is because of his gospel work. He is a known entity. His reputation is solid. And we come to find out even further that it wasn't even Paul's decision to send this man, but he was actually appointed by the churches to travel with Paul and Titus to carry out the grace. And so not only is this man going to go and collect the offering, but he's going to aid them and be with them as they deliver it to Jerusalem. This helps Paul's case, right, for integrity, because nobody could say that the people collecting the gifts and transporting it were handpicked by Paul, or that they were just merely Paul's cronies who would carry out this con job. Paul is saying, no, here is a guy who is well-respected among the entire community, and I didn't even pick him myself. Somebody else decided, a whole group of people decided. Right? And so if something shady was happening, you could count on this guy to, to raise the, the red flag. He would be the whistleblower if something was going on that wasn't quite right. That's the second person. The third man that is sent, also unnamed, he will join them. And Paul gives uh, the credential for him. Paul says that he has often been tested and found to be earnest or diligent in many matters. In other words, he has proven himself to be trustworthy with tasks and not just one task, but many tasks. Time and time again, this man has come through and he has a good track record and he will see the process through to completion. That's the third man. Why does Paul go through all of this trouble in explaining who is going? There's a remark here in verses 20 through 21 that we shouldn't overlook because that actually shows Paul's concern for the integrity of the process. It seems like an awful lot of hoops, an awful lot of red tape, Paul, to go through So why are you doing this? Well, in verses 20 through 21, we see the heart's intent in the collection. And it's specifically in response to the well-known famous man who was elected to go as a representative for the church. Paul says, look, we, we took this course of action. Or in other words, we took precaution. We went to great pains. We've gone out of our way doing something that we didn't necessarily need to do. We've done it though. Why? To ensure that no one could blame us about this generous gift that we were handling so that no one can discredit the ministry or the administration of this very large amount of money. We've, we've gone above and beyond in our process so that we would be above reproach. And it's fascinating. As Paul goes on in verse 21 to write that we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. Now you read that, and if you've been tracking with us through 2 Corinthians and you've, you've studied this book with us, you look at that and you're scratching your head saying, wait a minute, this sounds like a different tune that Paul is singing. Right? Because to this point, I thought, I thought Paul said that he doesn't really care what, what men think of him. 
Right? To this point, Paul has made it clear that when it comes to the legitimacy of his ministry or the health of his ministry or the success of his ministry, that Paul is only concerned with what is right in God's eyes rather than human eyes. But now there's a change of tone. Here, when it comes on this issue, not to the appearance of success, but to the appearance of sin, he does care what other people think of him. Paul doesn't care what they think if they say that he is weak in his ministry or if he is unsuccessful in his ministry, but he does care what they think if they say that he is sinful in ministry. God knows that Paul's heart is honorable. He doesn't need to jump off through all of these hoops for God's sake, but for the sake of the outsider looking in because they don't know Paul's heart. He does this because life and ministry are inseparable. There will always be those who judge the claims of Christ based on the life and the conduct of the one who preaches the claims of Christ. This is Paul's concern, that they will not discredit the ministry. They will not discredit the claims of Christ because of his own conduct. Some believers fall into this trap, right? Where they say, I only care what God thinks of me. I don't care what other people think of me. Only God can judge. And, you know, there is a small morsel of truth there. But it should be a degree of concern for our reputation. That's actually one of the qualifications for eldership. Spiritual leaders of churches should, should not be of ill repute. It should be a concern of us, for us, if others think that we are sinful. And so Paul takes the necessary steps in sending such men to maintain the integrity of the collection so that nobody could point back and take a jab and discredit the name of Christ. That is who he is sending. But then he eventually gets to the point in the passage where he says when he is sending them, primarily that he is sending them before he himself returns to Corinth. That's in chapter 9, verse 5, if you let your eyes wander down. He writes, So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead of you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised. Paul wants these guys to do the legwork of actually collecting the offering and make sure that everything is in order before Paul arrives. Paul is then going to arrive with some representatives from the church in Macedonia. And then he explains in the first five verses of chapter nine why he is sending them early. Why is he sending them ahead of time? Is it just because Paul's lazy? Is it, is it because he doesn't want to do this, that he doesn't want to put in the effort in collecting this? No, he, he has very good reasons, two reasons specifically that he lists. First, he's doing this out of a courtesy. He, he's giving them ample time to organize themselves in the effort. Because remember, they were eager to give this collection the year prior, but then they had this falling out with Paul and and, and the Corinthians are kind of this disheveled mess, right? The effort 
was, was halted. And so Paul's saying, this is what you said. You were eager. You had the desire. But now it's time to see it through. Right now, despite your previous eagerness, despite your previous pledges, despite your previous promises, you haven't followed through, followed through with your action. And so he's writing not to inspire interest into the Corinthians in eagerness, but it's actually a call to action. Paul mentions this in verse 1. He's saying, this this is superfluous for me to talk about this anymore. This is unneeded. You don't need to know about how eager you were. I don't need to remind you of that because you're very well aware that you were eager to do this. You, You know that you had a desire. You pledged this a year ago. And now it's time to see your faith driven to action. You were so eager, in fact, that I actually boasted about you to the churches of Macedonia. And it inspired them to give, even though they didn't have the capacity to give like you guys do. So wouldn't it be embarrassing if I showed up with some people from Macedonia and you hadn't gotten your act together? It'd be embarrassing for me, and it's going to be embarrassing for you. And so I'm sending you these men early as a courtesy to help you get everything in in order before I arrive. Otherwise, he writes, our boasting about you would be empty. It would be empty on the matter. That word for empty is very similar to another word that Paul uses back in verse 1 of chapter 6 when he encourages them not to receive the grace of God in vain. In, in emptiness. That's not a coincidence. Paul is saying these two are related. If you've received the grace of God in vain as an empty measure, you're about to, to, to participate in this collection in vain. Your words don't as, as matter as much, right? Paul, Paul reminds them that if they don't follow through with what they said or what they will do, your pledges and your promises are going to amount to, to nothing but a bunch of hot air. It's going to be empty. Your confessions and pledges and promises mean nothing if they aren't followed by action. And so I'm going to give you the opportunity. I'm going to send these men early so that you have everything going for you when it comes to, to, to doing this. That's the first reason he, why he sends them early. The second reason that Paul sends them early is explicitly stated in the second half of verse 5. So that it may be ready, it's the first one, as a willing gift, not as an exaction. Or the first purpose is I want you to be ready. The second one is I want you to be ready and it, it needs to be willing not an exaction. Or in other words, we don't want you to feel like we are forcing the gifts from you. We want them to be from the purity of your heart, having been transformed by the grace of God. We don't want it to feel to you like we are prying the gifts, the collection from your cold hands. Because that would be a spirit of greed on your part if that was the case. The thought that Paul has in mind here is that if if he shows up, and the collection hasn't been completed, then the Corinthians will give begrudgingly, not because they want to, but because they're afraid of him and what he will say or do. It will not be a gift that they give because of the grace of God in their life, but because they're afraid of God's judgment on them, because they don't want God to come down on them. It's the difference between giving proactively because one wants to, they have a desire, 
rather than reactively because someone feels obligated to. The, the, the gift, and more importantly, the heart of the giver is actually tainted if one gives under coercion or pressure. And this shows us that Paul is not only concerned with his own integrity or the integrity of the collection process, but he's also concerned about the integrity of the giver. He wants the giver to be of sober mind and heart when he gives, which is why he goes on in the next several verses, 6 through 11, I believe it is, in the passage where he expounds on this idea of being a generous and willing giver. He says that in verse six. This is the point. This is the point. This is what I want you guys to know. These verses are the heart of the matter. And it's here that we find really the majority of application for us in our own life as generous givers. First, Paul Paul says, I want you to be generous. Just just be generous. That's what I am encouraging to do. And he, and he explains the heart of the matter by sharing a relatively well-known proverb in verse 6, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. You understand the picture. It's, it's, It's one of two farmers. The first farmer has his bag of seed, full of seed, and he's the one that kind of goes in with his two fingers and picks out one seed. And then he meticulously goes down to the ground. He slowly sets it in place. And then when he decides that that's the place it needs to go, he goes back to the back and he does this one at a time. He's he's sowing sparingly. And and you've got this other guy over here who's looking at that saying, what are you doing? Give me that bag, right? And he takes the bag and he's like walking down the rows, just plunging his hand into the entire bag, grabbing as big of a handful as he can and throwing it all up in the air so that it just scatters across the earth. Which one is going to bear a greater harvest? It's the second one. Why? Because he gave generously. Because he sprawled out the, the, the seed. The one who scattered it out generously is going to reap a b- bigger harvest the point Paul makes is that the more generous we are, the greater the harvest will be. So be generous. Now, while it is a familiar parable, it's often misunderstood. Many people take this to be some kind of spiritual 401k plan where they say, if I'm really generous today, then God will pay me back in fiscal dividends tomorrow which isn't always the case. I guarantee that you will be blessed in some way by God. And I guarantee that the more generous you are, the greater blessings you will receive by God. But it may not be financial blessings. You can count on God's blessing, but it may look different than one anticipates. And besides that, any sort of talk in Scripture about the harvest, to my knowledge, is always speaking to gains, not for oneself, but gains for the kingdom of God. And so Paul says, be generous because you will see kingdom impact. There will be kingdom impact when you are. Now you look at that and you're saying, okay, Paul, I get it. You you want us to be generous. 
that is the appropriate response to somebody that has been transformed by the gospel of Christ, that has been transformed by the grace of God. So Paul, tell me, how generous do I have to be? How generous do I need to be? How much should I give? And Paul actually gives some clarity uh, on the verse, but he did, in verse seven, but he doesn't really answer the question directly. It might cause some frustration for people because we want the marker. He, he says in verse six, be generous. And then in verse seven, he clarifies that this is a matter that you decide in your heart before God. What does he say? Each one, individually, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. It's striking to us because Paul doesn't tell us how generous we should be. He never gives a certain mark. He doesn't say, be generous, and oh, by the way, this is the percentage of your income that qualifies as being generous. And and, and any less than this, you're not really being generous. No, he just says, be generous, period. Now, if you've grown up in Christian circles, if you've grown up in the church, you have heard often this, this idea or this term to tithe. To tithe, it literally means a tenth. And it's, it's this idea that we should give 10% of our income. It may come as a surprise to us that we will, ne- fi- we will find nowhere in Scripture that we as believers in the 21st century context, in the new covenant context, nowhere are we ever commanded to tithe. The Israelites were. The Israelites had to tithe under the old covenant, but we are not bound by that. And even to ask the question, how much do I need to give? What is the mark that's considered generous? may be evidence of a greedy heart. As if I make that marker, I will be okay. I will make the mark. I will earn God's favor. I will be all right. At the end of my junior year of high school, junior year of high school, I suffered early onset senioritis, a full year in advance. I had lost all motivation and I barely studied for my chemistry final that year. And it didn't help that I already knew that I had a high grade in the class. For some reason, due to a scheduling conflict, I had to take the final exam separate from the rest of the class. And it was the last thing that I needed to do in the school year before I was set free for summer break. Halfway through the test, I was so ready for summer that I asked my chemistry teacher in that moment, what is the lowest grade that I need on this test to keep my A? And so she graciously ran the numbers, which was a mistake on her part. And she told me I needed to score a 16%. Right then and there, with my exam half finished, I turned it in. I got a 45%. I flunked the test. I believe it was the only test that I ever flunked. But I kept my A. I met the mark 
Kids, if you're in school, this is a bad example. Don't do this. I'm going to get some angry emails from parents later on in this week. No, it's a bad example because my heart was not in the right place because I didn't care about excellence. I didn't care about what was honorable. What did I care about? I cared about doing just enough to make the mark. And so how generous do I need to be, Paul? How much do I have to give to make the mark? What is the threshold to earn God's favor, to keep on his good side? And Paul says, well, nothing. You don't have to give anything to earn God's favor. Because you've already, you already have God's favor. And you didn't do anything to earn it. It was by his graciousness and his mercy that he gave you his son, Jesus. He loves you. You don't need to earn it. You aren't under compulsion to give. And if you were, it kind of defeats the purpose of giving in general. Paul's saying, yeah, I want you to give because it tells me about where you are spiritually. It shows where your heart is. It shows the impact of God's spirit in your life. And you're not fooling anybody. If you give under compulsion, at least you're not fooling God. He knows. But as far as the amount, you decide. You decide in your own heart. We see that generosity, the generosity of a person is not determined by the amount, but by the heart. This is one of the problems with thinking um, that a 10% is required or commanded because it misses this generosity principle. Don't get me wrong, 10% might be a good place and a good bookmark, if you will. But for some people in this room, if they were to give 10% of their income, we would look at them and regard them as the most generous person that has ever walked the face of the planet because of how little they have. But for others in the very room, if you were only to give 10%, you could look at the books and say, wow, you are pretty greedy. Look at all this surplus. What more could have been done if you had only been more generous? And so Paul says, decide in your own heart what generosity looks like in your context. But a word of warning, the heart is deceitful above all things. So even with our generosity, we should pray like David in Psalm 139, search me. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Have you ever prayed that prayer when you consider your contributions? Lord, this is what I feel I can give. This is what, in my heart, this is what I consider generous, Lord, but would you search my heart? Am I being greedy? Am I holding on to my stuff? Am I satisfied in my surplus more than you, Lord? Paul says, be willing, be generous, give freely and know that we never need to worry about being too generous. Paul explains this in verses eight through 11, that God is the beginning of generosity. 
being sufficient in himself, needing nothing. He is the supplier of all things. He is the supplier of all the resources necessary for every good work. He supplies the seed. He supplies the bread. And this is where we see that we don't give to get. As one author writes, we actually get to give. The entire reason God provides surplus to us is so that we can give it away. And that we can give it away primarily as an expression of praise. You see, our giving is not an expression of paying something back to God as if we could pay him back. Our generosity isn't even an expression of our sincerity towards God because he already knows our hearts. Ultimately, our giving expresses worth towards God. Our ability to give is a declaration of who God is and what he has done. It is a declaration that he is the all-sufficient one. And this is what Paul gets at in verses 11 through 15. This passage ends in what we would call a doxology, a praise of God. It's loaded with it. Verse 11, paraphrased. You will be supplied with all that you need to be generous in every, every way. And what will this do? This will produce a thanksgiving towards God. Or in other words, a praise towards God. Verse 12, The purpose of the collection, Paul says, it does meet the needs of the people, but its primary purpose is to point people's attention to God. Praise. Verse 13, when they see your generosity, they're going to know your heart and they're going to know that your heart has been transformed by the grace of God, that it's been touched by the message of Jesus and how, how it's been transformed and they will praise God because of it. Verse 15, thanks be to God for this inexpressible gift, for the gift of Jesus Christ on the cross, the ultimate gift to us, completely free and available to us. And it is so grand that there are not even enough words, Paul says, to describe it. It is inexpressible. It is indescribable. It makes me think of my, one of my favorite hymns. If I could paraphrase once again, if we could fill the entire ocean with ink, And if we had paper that was sprawled across the sky and if every tree branch on the face of the planet was a writing utensil, utensil, and if every single person that walked the earth was a professional writer, to write the love of God above would drain the oceans dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. Thanks be God for his inexpressible gift. Paul says, don't you see? This, we're writing about the collection, but this isn't about the collection. This isn't about a giving initiative. No, this is about God and who he is and what he has done for us by his mercy and grace, and what he will do for us at redemption when Christ returns. Do we see how God-centric giving is? It not only begins with the all-sufficient God who supplies us with all things, but it ends with God and the praise of his name. The act of genuine, willing, Cheerful giving is an act of worship which magnifies God's all-sufficient character. Would you pray?
And Lord, we are thankful for this inexpressible gift in Christ. And I thank you, Father, that we are not under compulsion or coercion, that we do not give generously or reluctantly, but we do it because of how great, how great you are. Would our giving even today and our generosity even today be a testimony to, to your greatness? And I pray, Father, that we would be generous, not even just with our resources, but with our time, with our talents, with everything. We are thankful, Lord. We are so thankful that you have provided us all these blessings for us to enjoy. But would our ultimate satisfaction be in you? And in your holy name I pray. Amen.